Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 44 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is from Jeremiah, chapters 27 through 52, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online as a text or at audible.com if you prefer listening. Today we cover chapter 25, Jeremiah Sees the Fall of Jerusalem. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! All right, we have a short history lesson today. I'm hopeful that might uh, help the two chapters on Jeremiah fit in a little better. When Noah first landed on the ark, it was up at Mount Ararat, located between the Caspian and the Black Sea. The ruins of a structure which some think might have been the ark is located at 13,500 feet encased in ice. It'll be some time before we have a chance to get at it and determine for sure whether or not it could have been the remnants of the ark. <clears throat> they seem to have come down and gone to the land eastward, which we call Persia. And after about three generations, one of the descendants of Ham, named Nimrod, said, let's go over in this very luscious territory between the two rivers, which is Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. And there they built some famous cities, Ur of the Chaldees, Babylon, and Nineveh being among them. These people were all related. But in due process of time, these people lost political control, and the Assyrians became the dominant force on the earth. Uh, in 800 B.C. or shortly thereafter, Jonah made his warning to them. They repented for 40 years, and then about um, beginning about 725 or so, they started to launch their campaign. And uh, they finally completely dominated Egypt, conquered Egypt and so forth. Then they would be driven out. The Egyptians just hated them. So it came on down to about um, 612. B.C. Now, that's about Book of Mormon opening time. Do you have a question? And Because the re parents repented, and the Lord says, and we can save that 120,000 children. Well, they should have stayed repentant, and they wouldn't have had to be wiped out at all. But they did become a dominant force, you see. They came down, conquered Egypt. Egypt drove them out again. And then Babylon said, let's go up and take them. They're our cousins. So they got the Medes and the Persians to combine with them, and in 612 B.C., they conquered Nineveh. Now, that's a big date to remember. Nineveh fell. Uh, Lehi is uh, raising his children now, Laman and Lemuel, around 13 or 14. Uh, Nephi, you see, is 12. Uh, he's about four years old. Uh, little Sam's about six. And Laban is one of the uh, big generals, the up-and-coming uh, Josephite, Ephraimite, that's becoming very prominent in, uh, among the Jews as one of their leading generals. All right, 612, uh, the survivors of Nineveh went over to Haran, which was Abraham's old hometown, right? And there they mobilized, ready for uh, the big showdown. The, the Assyrians, meanwhile, collected at Karchemish, or Karchemish, uh, where a big battle, showdown battle would occur in 605 B.C. Meanwhile, in order to sort of um, cut off the Egyptian line of logistics and so forth, 
Nebuchadnezzar came over in 606 B.C. and took Jerusalem and took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over for their training and so forth. And then in 604, he was called, excuse me, in 605, they had this big battle here. Meanwhile, something very uh, unfortunate had happened uh, to the Jews because while Nico II, the pharaoh of Egypt, was going up in 609 to join the Assyrians and get ready for the big battle of Parchemish, which turned out to be 605, in 609 they were confronted by the Jews who said, let the Assyrians fall, they're so wicked, they're so terrible, they're so cruel. You remember all the things they used to do, uh, all the uh, cruelty. And so Josiah, the righteous king of the Jews, stopped them right here at Carmel. And... Uh, that's when Nico said, now you're one of our best customers, Josiah. I don't want you to cause, you don't want to cause any trouble, but get out of the way because we're moving up to help the Assyrians against their cousins, the Babylonians, that are trying to defeat them. And Josiah said, let those people fall. They're so wicked. Don't go up and help them. And Josiah said, I don't like, or Nico said, I don't like Assyrians either, but I hate Babylonians worse. So step aside. I'm moving in. Excuse me, I got a little ahead of my story. 609 is when Josiah is killed by Necho II. And that happened as the Egyptians were going up to join the Assyrians. Okay, let me backtrack a little bit. Forget about 605 for a minute and 606. I want to backtrack to 609. Josiah tried to stop them, dressed himself in an ordinary um, soldier's uniform and so forth, and, and went out to stop them, and uh, he got killed. And so they carried him back to Jerusalem and they arrived there with a the dead corpse. So Nico went on up and camped right up here, ready to join the Assyrians. Then the Jews appointed Josiah's young son, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz. And uh, he was a righteous young fellow. And uh, he immediately uh, started mobilizing the people like his father would and cleansing the city and one thing and another. And Nico find out that found out they'd appointed him, and he said, I don't want him. I killed your king. I conquered your army. Uh, I want uh, his older brother, Jehoiakim. So Jehoahaz was ordered up to the camp, and Jeremiah said, Mourn not for Josiah, but for that young boy who will never see this land again. He'll be taken elsewhere and die. That's in the book of Jeremiah. And he was. He was taken to Egypt, and there he died. And the older brother was put on the throne, uh, whose name was Jehoiakim, K-I-M, Jehoiakim. And he immediately, he just loved to, to tax the Jewish people and give the money to Nico II, who put him on the throne. So that's the situation during the part of Jeremiah's administration when you hear him talking about the wicked king. It was Jehoiakim that burned all the records of Je Jeremiah. It was Jehoiakim that killed Urijah, the prophet, a fellow prophet. Uh, it was Jehoiakim that was guilty of all kinds of immorality, etc., and ultimately was killed. Okay, now, I just want to be sure that as you go into the life of, of, um, of Jeremiah now, all of this, this ancient history is, is straight in our minds, because if it is... The Book of Mormon and the Old Testament make a lot of sense. How many of you had ever read the book of Jeremiah before this class? How many? On, on your missions? Even elsewhere. As a people, we are quite illiterate on these, these great prophetic writings. 
And I knew I grew up without them. So we're trying to make them a little more intimate, and they don't make sense unless you have some of this history in mind. And as we open on the first chapter on Jeremiah, this is what it talks about. I just wanted to be sure to remember those dates. 609 is here for the killing of Josiah. And uh, then I can go back to 606 was when Daniel was taken away. 605 is Karchemish. And then 598, Book of Mormon says 600. 598 for the second conquest of Jerusalem. When the Book of Mormon opens right afterwards, Jehoiakim is killed. Zedekiah, a younger brother, now is put back on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar says, now you keep those taxes coming to me. But right away, Zedekiah says, no, I'm going to, uh, he says to his counselors, I'm going to work with Egypt. We'll get, we'll get rid of that fellow. We're going to overthrow him. And that's when, of course, Jeremiah said, all right, here's the doomsday message. And he hit them again. Now, everybody got those pretty well straight in your mind now as we go into Jeremiah? Any question? Yes, well, the Babylonians didn't come out uh, with all their armies. They would send, uh, oh, the Moabites over and a few Babylonians. You see, they were fighting up here mostly. And it was always a little side issue. That's a flanking action they were trying to knock out. It wasn't as though Babylon were really uh, giving them an all-out effort. In 600 B.C., or 598, the historians say, when, when Jerusalem was conquered the second time, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to smash the city. He didn't want to destroy the temple. He just took a few gold vessels, etc., and took 10,000 people that next time. But it wasn't an all-out effort, like it was in 587. Oh, they really smashed Jerusalem that time. He was really angry. Yes, we can answer that very quickly. If a person dies before he reaches the age of accountability, he is automatically an heir to the celestial kingdom. That doesn't mean that he will go to the celestial kingdom. But Satan can't keep him out. And so the 88th section says he still must choose the law under which he will be happy. And most, terrestri most uh, heathen children elect to uh, go to the terrestrial kingdom, the Doctrine and Covenant says. But Satan couldn't keep them out of the celestial kingdom. You see, if the doctrine were that um, they would be compelled to go to the celestial kingdom if they died before the age of accountability, then it would be a great advantage to have as many diseases and so forth as you could among certain of the nations, wouldn't it? Because among some of the populous heathen nations, the majority of their people, except for our brothers and sisters, have been scattered among them. They already are on a terrestrial level. They were in the pre-existence. They didn't go all the way with the Father. That's why they are where they are, uh, the Lord says. And they will elect uh, the vast majority. And they don't fight the Lord. They just don't work for him either. They're just nice people. You know, they just kind of go along. And they end up in the terrestrial kingdom, even come forth in the first resurrection. And some have said, well, at least there are children who die before the age of accountability go to the celestial kingdom. Well, the 88th section clarifies that and says, each person goes to the kingdom that has the law under which he's happy, right? So those children still have the power to elect to go to whatever kingdom they want to obey the law in. And the vast majority of them, whether they died before the age of accountability or not, would apparently go to the terrestrial kingdom. That's what they elect. But we got a lot of our brothers and sisters among them that we're looking for that were scattered among them to be a special blessing to them, to, to lift them, as, lift as many as they could. Yes, it sure is. Yeah, we're not gathering by any manner of means. Our people panic every so often, like we did in California in 1933, I've told you about. 
some of you I've told. Some of I've had had you with me for three years, so I know I must have told you one time or another. Anyway, 1933, we had a big earthquake in California, and uh, the Saints got ready to come back. Nobody was killed or anything, but it sure shook us up. And President Heber J. Grant wrote a letter to the stake presidents and the mission presidents and said, immediately tell the saints to cease and desist. If they come back to Utah, they will not be blessed. Their mission is where they are. And I didn't call them back. And until the head of the church calls them back, they're not to come back as a body. So think what happened in California as a result, you see. It's become a bigger Zion than Utah, population-wise. They're predicting, I just got back this weekend, nice weather and everything. Smog had lifted. I was so pleased to see the mountains again. It's just kind of interesting, except for gas rationing, shortage of food, no meat, and a few things like that. Why, it was great. But uh, they're all talking about the coming earthquake down there, big earthquake. I think Gene Dixon predicted or something, and the seismograph people verified that there was going to be one. I think they said it first, and she said it second. But anyway, they're all talking earthquakes. There may be a little shakeup down there. We had one before, and the church had a chance to demonstrate what it could do to rally the people and take care of those that were uh, out of their homes temporarily. And kind of a shaky, scary experience. But anyway, the Lord says, I'll tell you when to gather. Don't gather before. We'll miss a lot of good things we should be doing. Now, someday you're going to read the book of Jeremiah from beginning to end, and I hope real soon. In fact, I hope you'll read the Bible every week from now on the rest of your whole lives. And I want you to read some of the Book of Mormon the rest of every week, the rest of your whole lives. Right? Every week. Every week you say, now, did I, did I do my duty this week? Did I study the scriptures? You really ought to study some of it every day. But at least every week, some of both books. I outlined here the chapters in the order in which they should appear chronologically. All authorities agree that somewhere back there, somebody pulled out some of those chapters and then got them mixed and didn't know how to put them together again, maybe a scribe or something, and everybody considered it too sacred to meddle with, and so they've just left it in its confused condition. And you go fine down to chapter 6, and then you should have 22. And you go fine down to 18, and you should have 26. So it's confusing and not chronological in its present order. It'll confuse you. It'll mix you up. So I, that's all outlined for you so that you'll have that pretty well in order. Um, this doesn't follow the outline um, in some of the other books exactly because we have modern revelation that helps us on some of this. So uh, that's our LDS arrangement of it uh, from a student's standpoint, not the brethren. They haven't arranged it that way, but we arrange that in preparing the text. Now, he was of what tribe? Jeremiah is of what tribe? Which one? Levi. Levi. What part of Levi? Therefore, he was entitled to be a priest in the temple. When he was called, about how old was he, according to Jewish tradition? 30? 14. How old was Joseph Smith when he received his first vision? 14 and a half, just a 14 a few months. This is believed to be the same age for about, for about the same age for Samuel, Enoch, and some of the others called in their youth. Now, what's the very worst uh, teenage year for a boy? Fifteen. It's, that's the worst year. Uh, the tenth year is the best. It's the last good year he has. Fifteenth uh, is absolutely the worst. It's frustrating. You're just, uh, you got all kinds of problems. Won't have time to cover them here. But anyway, you have lots of lots of problems. 
And uh, the Gazelle Institute says that the surveys show that on a broad spectrum, 15 is the most difficult year that a teenager has to go through. That's boys. It's a little earlier for girls but for boys. So the Lord just reaches out to remind some of these very choice people. And don't get confused this year. It's a tough year, but don't get confused. I've got a program for you up front. And so right away, Jeremiah tries to get out of his mission. Why does he say he doesn't want to accept the call? He's scared, and why? It's, it's great, but why does that bother him? Shouldn't he want to have it great? Yes. What's his problem? And something else. I am a child. I am a child. I can do this. You're telling me to call my own father to repentance. And all these people that live here in this community, all of which are priests of, of Aaron. I said, I can't do it. The Lord says, yes, you can do it. Before you were ever born, I ordained you to be a prophet unto the people. Now you do it. I just want you to remember two things. You speak confidently everything that I say. Number two, when they start harassing you, harassing for you English majors, harassing you, you stand up to them and don't be intimidated by their boldness. Now, that's quite an experience. Say, you're just reading the story of a man. You wait till you stand up to a judge, or as some of us have had to do in congressional hearings, stand up to five or six senators just pummeling the life out of you, trying to make you look ridiculous, sarcastic, and so forth. And you have a story to tell that they don't want the people to hear. They really don't want them to hear it. They know that it's got some merit to it, but it embarrasses them in their administration. They don't want the people to hear it, so they try to discredit it and ridicule it. And first of all, you must very humbly tell your story as you know it. And then when they ridicule you, then you have to very humbly say, it may be that you have not had a chance because you're so busy to read the gender committee report uh, or the testimony of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and for your convenience I will brief it for you. I happen to have it right here and uh, I'll brief it for you and then you have to go, go ahead and do the best you can to get your story out. Don't allow them to intimidate you. Just uh, don't be arrogant about it but see that your story is told. Abraham was another one of those that was called young by the way. Uh, he had his period of preparation, and it's interesting that nobody knew he was a prophet during this period, apparently. It was very quiet. His own family later turned against him, so we assume they didn't even know. It got so bad, he just couldn't stand it. He said, we've got to tell him. Oh, that terrible war. Oh, my inward parts. I can't stand it anymore to see all of this and not tell somebody. It's a terrible thing to have to keep a secret. You say a secret something you tell one person at a time, but he wasn't even allowed to do that. He's got to keep it to himself. And the Lord says, all in due time, I'll let you tell him. Now, there is a period of preparation, and Hiram Smith fell into the same trap, and he wanted to go out and tell all about his brother and the Book of Mormon, the wonderful things that were happening, and listen to the word of the Lord to him in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 11. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then shall your tongue be loosed, and then, if you desire, you shall have my spirit, and the power of God unto the convincing of men. But now hold your peace, study my word. Now that's what we're trying to get you to do. How many of you are returned missionaries? How many of you are returned missionaries? About half. So think how much stronger you would have been if you had known the Book of Mormon and known the uh, scriptures before you left. 
as the Lord tried to get us to do. So we're trying to get people better prepared now. And those of you who will go on a mission later, you're going to find it exciting. As one of my students wrote uh, recently from the British Isles and said, Brother Scousen, uh, in this um, district, I, I'm, I am the authority on the Book of Mormon. It amazes me. And he says, they think I'm an authority on everything else, so send me more books so that I can live up my reputation. Uh, <laughs> but that's all it takes is a little study. When I was a boy, you could read the Book of Mormon once and be the authority in your ward. <laughs> it's true. True. So um, the Lord says, if you'll get my word, then you can really declare it with power. You know who these people are and all their problems and relationships. Now the Lord told Jeremiah that he had a controversy with Judah, and I hope you remember some of these. First of all, they, they actually worshipped as their God and creator sex symbols, phallic symbols that they built, actually representing sex organs, and said that that was their God, their creative source. These were made of stones and so forth, and sometimes they were human beings or goats or calves or something representing fertility, but always this constant uh, obsession with the procreative process. And they had a God for every town, just like all of the uh, heathens did. And they had actually killed quite a number of the prophets. And they had murdered people. It was a society in which there was a lot of, uh, um, that is, murder took place. Then they sacrificed their children right down in this valley, just below Jerusalem. There's a valley drops off about 1,000, 1,500 feet. And down there they had these big uh, iron images I've told you about which were hollow and hollow arms, hollow legs, and then they'd roast the babies in their, in their arms when they were red hot. Then it says here there's gross immorality among this people. They not only commit adultery, but they assemble, they assemble by troops in front of harlots' houses. They line up. They're like fed horses in the morning, everyone neighing after his neighbor's wife. And it says you're constantly forming alliances with Egypt rather than listening to my prophet that says be subject to Nebuchadnezzar and live, as it turned out a little later. And then you have priests of Aaron who don't say, where is the Lord and what is his will, but rather they teach for commandments the precepts of men. That's what we're getting now, the what so-called social gospel. And the Communist Party sent uh, Dr. Ward into the uh, Protestant seminary in New York back around 1905, hardcore communist atheist, qualified as a minister of the gospel, very glib, and converted... Uh, hundreds of potential Christian ministers to communism. And in the FBI, we'd watch them. I noticed we followed a couple that came into, into Baltimore. They reported to communist headquarters before they went to their churches to report in. And their churches had no idea that they were getting party uh, um, ambassadors, not Christian missionaries. And so they'd start this business going called the social gospel. Don't worry about Christ and the next world. Take care of the poor and the needy. Then they'd gather up a lot of money, take care of the poor and the needy, and the poor and the needy never saw the money. It's kind of interesting how they did it. They got back, oh, they take care of a few little things, but it was um, a real interesting history to follow. And then if you went to the churches involved and said, be very careful of this minister and what he teaches because he has a background that's somewhat questionable. Oh, people be so angry. Oh, he's such a good man, such a sweet, nice man. And they did. They were good role players. And they'd, in, when they'd get together in some of their meetings, they'd use profanity, take the name of the Lord in vain, um, sit there and drink, get high and so forth, use the most vulgar, vicious language, and then they'd come back and play the part. And so pious and so on. It's just like these people. 
The Lord says, you think they're, they're priests and prophets, they commit adultery, they walk in lies, they strengthen the hands of evildoers, that none return from their wickedness. They don't preach repentance. Their prophecies are wind, and in the original it's stomach gas. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord, and so forth. I sent them not, nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. There's no good in them. Everything that they do, they turn to evil. That's a very strong doctrine in the kingdom, that evil men do never produce good. They pretend to sometimes, but always ended up corrupted. That was hard for me to accept in the beginning, but life has taught me it is true. Another one was the judges have corrupted themselves and take bribes. And the people depend upon prophets they have hired to teach them what they want to hear and to prophesy what they want to hear. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. And the Book of Mormon doctrine is that it is good to be learned if, if what? If they hearken to the commandments of God, counsels of God. It is good to be learned. But if your learning is used to uh, fool people, deceive people, uh, use the vocabulary and the language and the scientific um, jargon to impress people that you are wiser than they and therefore they must follow you, all that is evil. That's evil learning. And so God says, great learning is only to the advantage of men when it is in harmony with the counsels of God. Now, uh, Jeremiah says, uh, there's a war coming. I saw a big seething pot, and the fumes just spilled all over. Then I saw a boiling pot, and it scalded you. And we think the seething pot with the fumes, seething, you know, boiling, uh, that is the, just getting the steam, hot steam, that just kind of wafted their way. We think that was the Scythians, because the Scythians actually didn't come up into the mountains. They really took care of the Philistines down the valley, though down along the plains of Sharon. Then came the Babylonians, and this time they got a real scalding. So we think that was the second pot seen by Jeremiah. The prophet says, actually, there are two hopes for you people. One is that you'll repent and enjoy prosperity and peace now. The other is that if you don't, your descendants in the latter days will come, and they will inherit this land, and it will be prosperous and peaceful. So he said, I offer you those two hopes, now or for your descendants in the future. Then uh, he talks about the second coming of Christ in connection with the redemption of the land of Israel. And he says, when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, I saw the earth. Now, scientists are becoming aware that the great land masses actually were one land. And even the land that's down in the Antarctic, uh, as uh, the curate of our own university was able to demonstrate, has uh, animal life on it that once belonged to the mainland of Africa and South America and etc. So um, th they did separate. Now, of course, the scientific theory is that it happened a long time ago and rather gradually. The Lord says it was one land mass as recently as 2300 BC. And then it splintered across, and we have a few of our scientists that say that would have been possible to move that fast, although we wouldn't assume that's the case. And the boiling magma in the earth boiled up through the sh very thin s skin along the, particularly the Pacific Ocean, and thousands of islands just built up two and three miles until they reached the surface, cooling as they went. Yeah, you don't have to explain them away because, you see, we don't know how God 
uh, prepared the earth for human habitation. He may have used um, centuries and centuries of primitive life uh, and preparation of this planet for human habitation. He doesn't describe how he prepared it. Right. Everything is. Everything in this life has a spirit um, uh, entity. But you see, we don't have the whole story yet. What the Lord did to prepare the earth for human habitation uh, is something he's never disclosed. Science says we think during that preparatory period there were these very ancient forms. The Bible says that anything that's now upon the earth is not related to them. That when uh, this life was brought to the earth, the earth was absolutely barren of life. Anything that had been used to prepare it was extinct, had gone. And as Brigham Young says, uh, new life was introduced. Yeah, sure. And we're not sure that's the answer, but it's a, it, it leaves room for that answer. Brother Pratt pointed that out. So did Brother B.H. Roberts. But it came so, became so controversial in the church, the brethren suggested, well, everybody kind of study that one on your own. But I put their writings together, and, and I think that I uh, made that available to the first semester. Anyway, it's called... Um, uh, a, a working memorandum on the creation, and you're welcome to pick one up in my office if you'd care to, where I put together what Brother Roberts and Brother Pratt pointed out, and it leaves room for everything we're finding. Uh, Brother, Some of the brethren, though, have pointed out that there is some evidence that some of this life isn't nearly as, um, as old as uh, has been attributed to it. So we have all kinds of possibilities. And the Lord says in the 101st section, surprise. Right at the beginning of the millennium, I'm going to show you just how I did it and how it, what was involved, and it will be knowledge which no man knew. So that's going to be exciting because no one will have figured it out completely, but the ones that will have will appreciate it more than anybody will be the ones that sweat over it a little bit, that tried to find out. There are a lot. Yes, yeah, so there there are several of them, and that's another one. So uh, so. Uh, the Lord says, start with yourselves, will you? You're here. You know you are. And you're on a planet. And believe me, it's no accumulated accidental uh, phenomenon. As he said to uh, Isaiah, he said, I especially prepared it just so it would be just right for you. You know, coal and oil and the right climate and changing seasons and, and uh, so forth. I, I, set it, I really set it up nice for you. And a little later on, I'll tell you how I did it. Well, you see, if you take the pre preparation period, as Brother uh, Pratt and Brother Roberts did, they said there's a preparation period, and if this ancient life was used uh, during that period to prepare it, you had a, a, a death, a life and death uh, phenomenon. But all of the, the life that was brought into this planet that we belong to arrived here um, uh, in a suspended, uh, an immortal state. And without the fall, death wouldn't have been introduced into the earth. Now, if death was here previously for God's purposes, which would be very easy for him to arrange, death is very natural to, the, to this level of existence. That's something he has never talked about. And so we just don't know. It, it's, it leaves us standing very humbly in the presence of our Heavenly Father. As I said to, at the seminars between the science and college of religion, what God has said is sacred. But what God has done is just as sacred. And you're trying to understand what God has done. We're trying to understand what God has said. And both of us have to be very humble about 
uh, forcing uh, forcing it beyond what it actually says. So you get over into that field, you need to be a very astute, careful student and, and realize that no matter how much you study it, you won't get the whole answer. We just don't know enough about it, neither do the scientists. But it is obvious that many things the scientists have said takes a long time actually is quite recent. Uh, mountains that are pronounced to be extremely old, some of these mountains are as um, new as the uh, last two millennia. They can't find one of them that came up as a result of the death of Christ. There were terrible changes on the face of this planet. That recent. But ge geologically, they can neither prove nor disprove that statement. So we have the statement of the Book of Mormon that it happened. And that'll turn out to be true. But it cannot be proven geologically at this time. <clears throat> nor can they disprove that it didn't happen. Now, Jeremiah saw that all of these continents that spread apart back around 2300 B.C. in the days of Peleg all came back together again, incidental to the coming of Christ, with one massive collision. And he said, I want to tell you, you didn't see anybody running around, no human beings. I didn't see any birds in the air. Cities were just demolished. I saw every hill, everything was just shaking up and down like the waves of the sea. In another place he says, I saw no standing walls. But a sixth of the population that are at, uh, at Jerusalem at that time, they survived, but five, six are wiped out. There's a great uh, a deep population explosion at that time. And it's just up ahead of us there a little ways. And my, how grateful people will be to be worthy to be caught up. Because the Lord says, that's what I'm talking about. There will be fire and destruction during that terrible period that will destroy human life and many other kinds of life as these continents are all brought back together and the seas forced back and it will be just the way it was before the great flood and before the division in the days of Peleg. And you see it will be one from a family and two from a city that will be caught up. And it will be a great blessing to be able to be with the Savior and and his host during that terrible period. And as soon as we come back, we'll have 144,000 high priests that will go out across the earth uh, and find the scattered remnants of the human family and say to them all, now stand steady. You saw the face of the Savior. He has arrived. And we you all saw him together. Now you've survived. Now he is in charge. We are his priesthood. Now, if you do what you're asked to do, all will be well. That's the 144,000 the Scripture talks about, 12,000 high priests out of each tribe. And that will be their task, to get everybody settled down after the millennium, get them organized, and we'll almost start a whole new order of things uh, afterwards. Now, I, I saw two hands. Yeah, there'll be a, a long period of persecution, considerable period of persecution. Yes, it says the saints themselves will barely escape. Well, they'll be caught up. They'll be caught up before the the worst part of the destruction, the the cataclysmic part where the continents come back together. They're caught up when that hits. The Doctrine and Covenants clarifies that. It gives the order in which it occurs. Before that, before that, we have to have the temple built in the New Jerusalem, which will be preserved. So will the temple be preserved in the Old Jerusalem? 
of the temple in Salt Lake, Brigham Young said, that has to stand during the millennium. Now go back and take all those, those great big heavy stones apart. I want every one of them um, squared until they fit smoothly together. Don't put any little chinks of granite in between them. So they went ahead and, and uh, I think it's uh, 16 feet down there at the base, if I recall correctly, and they had to take all those big stones apart and reface them after they had the whole, the, 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 the lower two or three courses all laid, he caught them putting little chinks of granite in between where they didn't quite fit. No, he said, you go back now. We'll reface those all over. Yes. No, they'll be in a transfigured state, just temporary. Then they come back down and have their families and go right on about their business. Let me just uh, cover another uh, couple of points. You notice how lonely it was for Jeremiah? He was told not to marry. His own family turned against him. He almost got killed. Uh, he was abused by the high priest. Uh, everything done to embarrass him and ridicule him. If it hadn't, he probably would have been killed if it had not been for Ahiakim, um, uh, who had been a counselor to righteous King Josiah. And when the mob was going to kill him there on the temple square after he'd done his duty, they grabbed him, arrested him, and brought him before the judges that, that sat right there. And when he, that gave him a chance to tell his story again. And then when he was through, he says, As for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seemeth you good. Meet unto you. I've done what God said. You want to kill me? Go ahead. And Ahiakam uh, spoke up, and he said, You remember when Micah came and warned the people they were going to be destroyed? They didn't kill him. They repented. Saved the city. That's, don't kill this man. That saved his life. But he still had to go into hiding most of the time. And finally the Lord came along and said, Now I want you to have Baruch, your scribe, write down all the revelations I've given you from the beginning. He apparently had written nothing down. So he got Baruch and he started in, he dictated everything, and then he told Baruch to go to the temple square and read it to the people. And so he was there and he was reading it and they were excited about it. That's wonderful material. My goodness, God has spoken again. So they wanted to have the king enjoy it, take it to the king. What did he do? Which king was it? Jehoiakim. And you see, he's only three or four years from being killed himself. He doesn't know that. But it's all in the computer. Okay, I think that'll hold us now, and I'll try and finish it next time.